like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hi, everyone. It's Sophia, and welcome back to Work in Progress. When you think Jane Goodall, your mind probably jumps immediately to chimpanzees, and with good reason. Her landmark study of chimps in the wild fundamentally changed our understanding of humans' relationship to other primates and the capability of animals. But Jane Goodall is so much more than her research in primatology. And today, she is our guest on Work in Progress. Dr. Goodall is also a powerhouse in climate change activism and conservation. The Jane Goodall Institute's Trees for Jane campaign is creating a cross-generational initiative to preserve, replenish, and promote our planet's forests. She is an author whose newest book, The Book of Hope, is coming out this month. Her TED Talks have millions of views, her podcast, hundreds of thousands of downloads. But Jane Goodall has always used her platform, her many platforms in fact, for one thing, the betterment of our planet and human interaction with the environment. I am so excited to talk with Jane Goodall and learn more about her as a person, as well as dive deeper into her extensive career and the roles that she has taken on as an advocate for nature. I hope you're excited too. Let's get started. Good morning, Jane. It's so lovely to see you again. Good to see you, too. How have you been since the Templeton Prize? Busier than I've ever been in my whole life, with publishing books and with all the COP26 coming up and all the pre-COP26 and all the UN stuff, and it it just doesn't stop. I mean, there's there's a minimum of two Zooms a day. That's a minimum. Mm. I had two hours this morning, very busy, all over the world. I mean... In one day, I can be in China, India, Tanzania, North America, you know, 
Mm. It's incredible. I, I imagine that it must be surreal, you know, all of these years into your work and career and your public advocacy to be, as you said, busier than ever. Does it feel like we're at a moment where everyone is really, really listening to what you've been saying for so long? Well, it does seem like it, strangely enough. It, it really does, you know, because some of these issues are rising up to the top of government agendas, and there does seem to be more awareness, and COVID has woken people up. Mm. And, you know, also the fact that the effects of climate change are no longer just being thought of as, oh, something happening in the third world far away. Now it's harming people all over the U.S. and Europe. And mm. I think that's made a big difference. Yes, it is so interesting. I, It seems that many of us were cultured for a long time to think, oh, well, it couldn't happen here. Terrible things don't happen here. We read about them in the history books and, and they happen far away. And oh, isn't it sad? But people don't often feel truly touched. And to see the ways that that false idea that not to be crass, but ridiculous idea of um, separatism or safety has has really begun to go away for a lot of folks. It seems that people are understanding what you've been saying for so long. You know, our our liberation is bound together. What happens there happens here. What affects the environment far away affects our own. And now when you see, you know, the subways of New York flooding like in a disaster movie and and northern zones in this country being redesignated as subtropical everyone's going oh this is what the scientists yep. have been talking about so on the one one coast you've got flooding and destruction from hurricanes on the other side the environment is burning mm -hmm. and europe mm -hmm. of course was subjected to these terrible floods earlier in the year and fires too and for mm. the very first time in history, as far as we know, the uh, Arctic forests were on fire in wow. the Arctic Circle. And since I first went to Greenland, the ice cap has dropped. I mean, you know, and like when I first went to Tanzania, Mount Kilimanjaro, the famous snows of Kilimanjaro, snows came halfway down the mountain. Now they've mm. gone. Wow. I, I'm curious about all of what you've seen. And, and when you talk about where you find yourself in your career now, zooming all over the world and being able to be in so many places at once, I think back to our first interaction, which I got to tell you about recently, when I was in the eighth grade and you came and spoke at my school in Pasadena, my little all-girls school called Westridge. And I was so touched when I shared that with you because you said, what it's been like as Ms. Jane Goodall to meet so many people who say, you came to my school in this city, you visited my school in this town. You, you've really dedicated so much of your life, not only to showing up in the places that require study, but then taking your learned knowledge to other places to inspire the rest of us. And I'm very curious I found myself thinking a lot about this after we got off of our last Zoom. I thought, well, well, who was Jane as a schoolgirl? 
you know, what what school did you grow up in? Because I I know my experience as a schoolgirl meeting you, but but who were you when you were that age? When you were in, you know, seventh or eighth grade, were you always really curious about the world? Did you love animals as a child, or or did that come later? I was actually born loving animals. My mother tells me that when I was just eighteen months old. She found I'd taken a whole lot of earthworms to bed. And she said, Jane, you were watching them so intently. I think you were wondering, how do they walk without legs? And, you know, because I was so curious as to where a hen's egg came out of the hen, I couldn't see a hole like that. And we'd gone to stay on a farm in the country. And Mm. so I hid in a hen house for four hours, aged four. (laughs) A four-year-old hiding for four hours. My mother didn't know where I was. She even called the police. But I was very lucky in having a supportive mother. And this love of animals she supported. And when I was Mm. growing up, it was during World War II. So I don't think they even made children's books. Anyway, we didn't have any money, so to speak of. So books came from libraries. But mum found books for me about animals. She thought, well, Jane will learn to read more quickly. So the great thing, the reason I'm saying this is that the most important thing for a parent is to support the interests of the child and not try and push them into some career path that isn't important for the child. And so many mm-hmm. parents do that. You know, you've got to go to business school. You've got to get. You've got to make money. You won't. You won't. You won't succeed unless you make money. Make money. Make money. Make money. And mm-hmm. I've had young people come up in tears and say, "I don't want to go to business school. I don't want to do business. I want to help the environment." Mm. It's interesting, you know. For me, my dad immigrated to the U.S. in the seventies and became a citizen when I was twelve or thirteen. Right, right around that sort of crossover age. And my mom's family uh, came in my grandmother's generation, you know, on a boat from Italy into the U.S. The sort of nostalgic famed stories of coming in through Ellis Island and, you know, signing your name in the book. And even though my dad is an artist, there was definitely that kind of a culture for me of, you know, you'll be a doctor or a lawyer. Or you could be a lawyer or a doctor. It was very specific. And and it was interesting, I think, when I finally got to tell my parents what I really wanted to do. And I understood their fear. I think lots of parents want their kids to have the most secure, if not the most creative job. But, you know, I got to point at my dad and say, well, you turned your hobby into your work. <laughs> Both my parents thought, oh, damn it. <laughs> she has a point. Yep. Um, but I, I do think it's so cool to realize that if, as you say, if a parent can release a little bit of that, you know, grip on fear and lean into what their kids are passionate about, you know, look at, look at what can happen. Even as you say, you know, you grew up during the war, I I imagine there were periods of austerity and, and struggle, what part of England were you in as, as a child? Where where were you at that time? Right where I am now, south of England, Bournemouth. And all that stood between us and the might of the Germans, uh, Nazi Germany, was a little bit of scaffolding and some barbed wire because Britain wasn't <sighs> prepared for war. And quite honestly, 
it seemed hopeless because the rest of Europe had capitulated. They'd either uh, been defeated or surrendered. And mm. it was just for a while, it was just Britain standing up against the might of Nazi Germany. And it was our air force and the um, armed forces from the colonies. Otherwise, the whole of Europe would have been overrun by Nazi fascism. And so, wow. you know, I was 10 years old when the pictures from the Holocaust were released. And it taught me a lot. I mean, I was very young when I learned about evil and what true mm. evil is. And seeing those first pictures of the survivors of the Holocaust, these walking skeletons, I mean, it was, it made such a deep impression on me. And I think the fact that having lived through that time, yes, with rationing, austerity, and all the rest of it, taught me to take nothing for granted, food or mm. life. And it also helped me to understand that however dark the situation seems today, which it does, we're living in dark times, politically, socially, especially environmentally, but if Britain came through that dark time, then we can again. We've got that mm. indomitable spirit. What I love about your what you're saying is it it feels like a real merger between a practical realism and hope. And I think we need that. I think we need to be very frank about where we are and remember the resiliency not just of the human spirit, but the planet. I wonder when you tell that story, that kind of experience for a young child is so sobering, and I imagine for so many of you, traumatic. You know, to, to learn evil at the age of 10 is, is no small experience. Did that real kind of reality check, for a lack of a, of a better term in this moment of aha for me, uh, did did that experience influence the way that you advocate, the seriousness with which you talk about the way the world treats itself? Well, I, I, how can I tell? I don't know. I had an mm. amazing mother. I had an amazing family. Mm. And one of the things my mother did, which was extraordinary, uh, well, actually, first of all, when I was 10, I dreamed of going to Africa and living with wild animals and writing books about them. And everybody laughed. Girls didn't that do that early? sort of thing. Yeah, 10. Wow. Yes, after reading the books mum found for me. And uh, everybody laughed except mum. And she said, if you really want to do something like this, you're going to have to work really hard, take advantage of every opportunity. And if you don't mm. give up, maybe you find a way. That's the message I've taken to young people all over the world, particularly in disadvantaged communities. And I wish mum mm. was around to know how many people have written to me or said to me, thank you, because you've taught me, because you did it, I can do it too. Mm. And that is a wonderful message to take around. But the mm. other thing that she did, you know, I credit a lot of who I am and what I've done to the way that she raised me, mm. uh, was that after the war, I mean, during the war, you can imagine when London's being bombed, when your relatives are dying, being shot down um, by the Germans, mm. when there's the Blitz, people in London, bodies destroyed, houses destroyed, huge mm. areas, 
My uncle was a doctor in London, and he was working desperately on the Blitz victims. And uh, <clears throat> so we hated the Germans. You can imagine, we hated them. And you'd hear the sound of a German voice, and it would make you feel cold inside. But after the war, about five years after the war, there was a German family that wanted someone to come and speak English so that their children would learn to speak good English. And mum's friend said, you can't let Jane go to Germany. But she let me go because she wanted me to understand that Nazi Germany was not the same as Germany and that Germans were like us. And it was just mm. this fanaticism that are now we're seeing in different parts of the world. Mm. That's such a beautiful thing that she did. In that time, you have this dream at 10. Your mother says, lean into it. The war ends, and, and in your early teen years, you get this next incredible lesson that people are not always their government's ideology. And then I know at 23, you left for Kenya for your first study in Africa. What, what happened in between those years? What happened in, in Jane's life from, you know, your mid-teens until you set off on that voyage? Well, I did well at school. I didn't like school. It was a day school. I didn't like it because I wanted to be out in nature. I wanted mm. to be with my dog. I did not want to be in school, but I was good at the, the lessons. Um, I did well. I was always up in the top three in exams, for example. So when I left school, I couldn't afford university because in those days you couldn't get scholarships unless you were good in a foreign language, and I wasn't. It's one thing I couldn't do. And so I had to have a job. You know, I said we have very little money. And I, we had just enough money for a secretarial course. So I did a boring old secretarial course. I was in London. I had fun. I was, you know, I enjoyed going out and having going to the odd dance and um, meeting young men and this, that, and the other. But the dream of Africa was always there. And so when I was invited by a school friend to go for a holiday in Kenya, that was the opportunity. And I came home because you couldn't save money in London. And I worked in a hotel around the corner, just around there, uh, as a waitress. And it was one of those old-fashioned hotels. It wasn't a fancy one like today. So you went in and the rest of the staff were all professional, me just mm -hmm. coming in. And they resented me. They thought, oh, well, Jane will get invited out and she'll leave us in the lurch. Well, of course, I'm not like that. I wouldn't do that. I took it very seriously. In fact, mum and I mm -hmm. sometimes giggled over it. <laughs> and uh, it was interesting because I got to know these Irish Catholics. That The whole waiting staff was Irish Catholics, except for one Italian. And the, the one man, other than the wine waiter, was Italian. And so I found my way around in this strange world. And, of course, in the end, they accepted me totally, invited mm -hmm. me to their weddings and things like that. And finally, I saved up enough money, went out to Africa when I was 23 on a boat because planes weren't going back and forth in those days. That's how long ago it was. Wow. And the first place we landed was Cape Town. 
um, because instead of going through the Suez Canal, if you know your geography, there was mm. a war between Britain and Egypt, silly war, but the Suez Canal was closed. So we had to go all the way around Africa and landed in Cape Town for the first time. And it was so exciting. Africa, I was in Africa, I was on African soil. I'm on my way. But then on the benches in the parks and on the doors to the restaurants because we stopped for two days while the ship refueled or whatever they do. And um, with all this writing in Afrikaans, slechts blanc, slechts blanc, slechts blanc. So I said to the friends who were taking me round, what does this mean? White people only. And suddenly I couldn't leave fast oh. enough because I wasn't brought up that way. Wow. Yeah, as a young woman to to have been healing one war and then to enter into the horrors of apartheid must have been quite a shock. It was horrible. So you begin to understand what's happening then in South Africa, but only two days in Cape Town. I mean, it's not long to necessarily meet people, ask questions about what's happening. You said you couldn't get out of there fast enough, which I, I feel like I understand. Were you able to glean any kind of information about who was doing the work there? Or, or was it so brief that you just got back on the ship and continued on to get to Kenya? I had an introduction to a, a parson um, who had been in the church in Bournemouth, mm. a congregational and he told me some terrible stories. And the one that stuck with me, he was walking along the street and there was a bus coming and there was this African woman, an old lady, and she had um, a, carrying a heavy basket and one of the handles broke and everything scattered over the road. And so he rushed to help her and he said her face turned grey under the black skin and she said, I'll get terribly punished if a white person is seen helping me. That's how bad it was. How, how, how do you begin to process that, you know, as a young woman? Because it's not lost on me that I would struggle deeply if I witnessed something like that today. And we're talking about, what, 60 years ago? Maybe more? Yeah. How, how do you make sense of oh, this is what injustice is happening in this part of the world, and know that you're not going to be able to stay there to do anything about it. I mean, I couldn't do anything about the Holocaust, could I? I was 10. Mm. Um, when I got to Kenya, it was better. It was on the, on the brink of becoming independent from British colonialism. But realizing that British colonial rule was crumbling in Kenya and then subsequently in Tanzania, which was Tanganyika when I arrived, you know, it was, I mean, you can't fix everything. One person mm -hmm. can only do the things that one person can do. And mm -hmm. so I've never spent a lot of time agonizing over things I can't do. I mean, yes, do I get upset? Am I upset about what's happening in Iran? Did the women? Yes, I am with the Taliban taking over. I can't do anything about it. And of course, I hate it. But I can only support people who write and say, you know, I, I can't do anything. So I, there's no point wasting all your energy on something you actually cannot do something about when there are so many things you can try and do something about. Mm, that's hard. It's a hard pill to swallow. But I think it can be a very helpful advice 
to say you should always ask questions, try to understand what's happening to people, you know, use your voice, be compassionate, and be clear about focusing your skill set on that which you can help the most. I, I think sometimes, and I hear this, you know, when I, Jane, speak to young people in schools, they say, well, I just don't know how to help. I don't know what to work on. They feel so overwhelmed because they do have so much information about all of these things happening around the world. And I, I think that that is a really excellent, and again, um, it, it, it reminds me of that sense you gave me earlier of practical hope. You have to really want to change the world for the better and be practical about how much you as one person can do. Yes. And, you know, fortunately, I've lived long enough that I have a network of, of friends in different fields. So one thing I can do is link people together, link mm -hmm. the people who ask for help to somebody who can help. Because yeah. right now, just about any problem that the world is facing, there's a group of people or several groups uh, who are working on that particular pro problem. So as I know many of them mm -hmm. now, just linking them is something that yeah. one can do. Oh, that makes me so happy to hear you say that because that's something I really take great pleasure in as well. There's the there's the whole world of each of our versions of, you know, public activism. And one of the things that actually feels most fulfilling to me is the stuff nobody knows about when I am able to make an introduction, connect three people on an email or a text message and 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 make sure that we I think about it almost as like, um, you know, the nets under the trapeze artists at the circus. It feels like that to me, weaving these nets of support. And that that's a good reminder for anyone listening at home as well. Sometimes the greatest gift you can give a cause is connection to another. So we, we now, back to our steamship, we now are arriving in Kenya and you're having this first experience. You talk about always having had an interest in animals and in primates. You've told the story many times, so I, I won't ask you to repeat it of, you know, your stuffed chimpanzee that, that you had as little Jane. How, how did all of these things, these, this series of coincidences, the holiday and your interests and your wonderfully supportive mom who encouraged you to lean into animal study and science, did all of those things just perfectly line up when you met? Louis Leakey, because I'm thinking about this transition, as, as you mentioned, from secretarial work to winding up in the Gombe Stream National Park. How, how did that shift happen? It followed perfectly because that boring old secretarial training, when I met Louis Leakey, because I heard, Jane, if you're interested in animals, you should meet Louis Leakey. So I mm. went to see him at the Natural History Museum. Uh, he was curator. And he took me all around and asked me many questions. I think he was impressed. I knew so much, even though I had just come out from England, because I'd read every book I could. I spent hours in the Natural History Museum in London. And guess what? Two days before he met me, his secretary had left. He needed a secretary. So there I was, and now suddenly I'm surrounded by all these people who could answer all my questions about the mammals and the birds and the reptiles, the amphibians, the insects, the plants of Africa. And he let me wow. go on an expedition 
onto the Serengeti Plains, Olduvai Gorge, when all the animals were there. And he was very impressed that I knew how to behave instinctively when I met a lion and when I met a rhino. He said I'd done exactly the right thing. And so that's when he decided to ask if I'd go and study chimps. I'd never dreamt of chimpanzees. I mean, they were exotic. Nobody knew any. Nobody had studied them at all. And he wanted a woman because he felt women might be more patient. He was delighted I hadn't been to university because he said, you know, your mind is uncluttered by the then very reductionist attitude to animals that the ethologists had. And so mm. it, it all seemed to be leading in the same direction. And everything I did, whether I wanted to do it or not, prepared me for the next step. Incredible. And how old are you at this point? I was 23. In those days, 23-year-old today is quite sophisticated. But after the war, you know, we were very sheltered. There were no young people going out for overseas holidays. Just they'd go as far as Switzerland for skiing if they could mm. afford it, which we couldn't. Um, but, you know, there weren't the sort of adventures that students go on today. Absolutely, there weren't. Mm. There was uh, the world tour for young men who went around usually with a tutor, but girls were supposed to, you know, do some job. Maybe you could be a, a flight attendant or you could be a nurse or you could be a secretary and you waited to mm. get married. That was it. It's so interesting to think about the the restraints placed on women at the time. And yet, here's your mentor, and he says, you should go. It, it makes me think about how even today we're discussing the gender disparities in STEM fields, in, you know, for the folks listening at home, science and technology. And we hear stories about how difficult those avenues can be for women to get into. And, and I'm amazed and so not only glad for you, but for us who've benefited from your work that Lewis Leakey said, I think you should do this. While you had him encouraging and advocating for you, were you faced with other obstacles as a woman entering the fields of anthropology and primatology? Or, or did his blessing make other people take you seriously as well? No, well, you see, I was so lucky because basically there wasn't anybody out in the field. It wasn't that I broke into a <laughs> male-dominated, I broke into a completely new area of research. Wow. There was George Scheller out studying gorillas, which he managed to do for a year. And there were two Americans in South Africa studying baboons. That was it. There wasn't a wow. field. Primatology didn't exist. So the ethologists were studying birds and insects. And that was it. And that, you know, at least at Cambridge, when I finally got there, my supervisor had a group of but captive monkeys. So the most of the animal research when I began, if there was any, was done on captive animals. It wasn't. I wasn't competing with men. That's incredible. When I think about all of your study. You've observed chimpanzees and primates for such a long time, and, and you've really contributed so much toward our understanding of our closest relatives. 
on this earth. Can you tell us a little bit about the behaviors you've witnessed in them that have made you perhaps better understand human nature? Yes, well, chimpanzees are so like us in so many ways. We know now how like us they are biologically, like Mm. we differ in the structure of DNA by only just over 1%. That's all? Yeah, that's all, genetically, the DNA. We're 98.6 or 7% the same of of the composition. The difference comes Mm. in the expression of the genes, and the environment plays a major role, but um, in their behavior, which is why Leakey, Leakey believed that about six million years ago, there was an ape-like, human-like creature, because he spent his life searching for the fossilized remains of early humans. So he thought, uh, because behavior doesn't fossilize, so you can tell a lot about the creature from its skeleton, but he thought, well, if Jane sees behavior similar to humans in chimps today, then maybe that behavior was in the common ancestor, and maybe we've brought it with us through our long evolutionary separate pathways, which I believe to be true. So, you know, seeing how they communicate with kissing, embracing, holding hands, patting one another, um, seeing how the males compete for dominance, swaggering, looking as big as they can, just like mm-hmm. human male politicians, especially some, which you <laughs> probably know even better than me. Um, and then the strong bonds between mothers and offspring, family relationships that go on through a life of up to 65 years, and mm-hmm. different kinds of mothers and the offspring of the supportive mothers who risk everything to go and rescue their child from a difficult situation. Those offspring do better. They're more self-assured. Males reach a higher position in the hierarchy and probably sire more kids and the females are better wow. mothers. So it, because of all these similarities, I mean, they they have a kind of primitive war They can be brutal and violent, which was a shock. They kill, Mm. kill each other from neighboring communities. Uh, But they also can show altruism. An unrelated male may adopt a motherless infant and save its life. Mm. But because they're so like us, you can stand back and say, yes, but we're different. I mean, you know, chimps are way more intelligent than anyone used to think, as are other animals, including right down to the octopus and even insects. But, Mm. I mean, you know, we're talking to each other from different continents. And we could, if we wanted, we could have 20 other people from 20 other conferences on our our countries on a Zoom. Uh, Mm. We've sent, you know, last week there was a beautiful full moon. And when I look at it, I mean, I remember, you don't, but I remember the first landing on the moon and the awe because science fiction when I was a child. And every Mm -hmm. time I look at that full moon, I think, wow, we put people up there. And I tell people in my lectures, don't take it for granted. Look at that moon and think, we put people up there. And now we've sent rockets to Mars. Mm -hmm. So this biggest difference between chimps, us, and other animals, explosive development of the intellect So is it not bizarre that this most intellectual creature 
It's destroying its only home. We don't want to go and live on Mars. We can't live on the moon. We cannot in our lifetimes get to faraway planets that might support similar life to that which we know. So we've just got this one beautiful blue and green planet and we're destroying it as you and I speak. We're destroying the forests, we're polluting the oceans. Our stupid industrial agriculture is killing the soil, spraying poison, losing biodiversity. We're trafficking animals, which is why we have this pandemic, because we've created conditions where diseases can jump from an animal to a person where they may start a new so-called zoonotic disease. We're burning fossil fuel, we're polluting the atmosphere. I mean, we're stupid, stupid, stupid. And I think clever brain and human heart have disconnected. Yeah. I think about how sometimes this this distance, this is, you know, the longest 12 inches in the universe. It really can be a struggle for us to connect exactly what you're saying, the head to the heart. Why do you think it is that humans believe, again, in studying our closest relatives, where it's really simply a difference of 1% of DNA and, and genetic expression, why do we think we're so special? Because the Bible and other religions have told us so. Mm. I think that's really at the at the core of it when you think how what an important part some kind of religion has played throughout mm. human history and mm. you know the, there was a, a word mistranslated in the bible in genesis where it says god gave dominion gave man dominion over the birds and the fish and everything but actually the proper translation of that hebrew word is stewardship. That's very different. Mm. And I think it's led to an enormous amount of abuse of animals. And all these mm. animals I just mentioned, the ones being trafficked around the world that have led to zoonotic diseases, but the animals in our factory farms crowded in these cruel, horrible situations, yeah. the puppy mills, the sports hunting. <sighs> I mean, you can go around and, and add on and on and on, cockfighting, dogfighting, you name it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now we know every one of those animals is an individual with a personality capable of feeling fear, terror, despair, and pain. Mm-hmm. And think of the almost unimaginable scale of suffering. Mm-hmm. It's a cognitive dissonance. It's, it is truly so strange to me that, as you say, dominion, what a word, that we think we are the rulers of a planet when really we're just guests. We're destroyers of the planet. Mm-hmm. Like some rulers today, that's the problem. Some governments are and presidents are so autocratic. Mm-hmm. That's a big problem. Which I suppose all boils down to a desire for control and a thirst for power. And and that makes me curious about something you mentioned earlier. And you, you write, you know, your first two books, Shadow of Man and Through a Window, you chronicle 
what is said to potentially be the first ever recorded instance of chimpanzee warfare. And war, as we've spoken about a variety of them already today, again, feels to me like a, you know, a battle over dominance and, uh, and a thirst for power. What was it like to see that kind of warfare in chimpanzees? I mean, the first time you talk so much about the tenderness and the, and the intricacies of their society, and then to see this, what, what was that like as an experience for you? It was totally, totally horrible. The thing is that chimps, male chimps are territorial and they have a territory. And when I began studying these chimps, I think I arrived at a point when a rather big community was dividing. That's what I think. And probably because we fed bananas, they stayed together longer than they might have otherwise. But anyway, this process of one group of males moving further south was sort of ongoing from the beginning. And it was more males in the in the in the north, and a small group went south. But the problem was that the smaller group settled in part of what had been the range of the whole community when it was before oh. it split. And for four years, there was not much going on. But then gradually, the larger group began doing these patrols and just awful to watch because they would climb into a tree overlooking what you can think of as the hostile territory of of this new community that had separated off and silent and then seeing an individual by itself and running and attacking and killing not outright Uh. killing leaving the individual to die of the wounds. And the awful thing was, these were chimps. It was a civil war. These were chimps who had fed together, nested together, groomed together, mm. played together. I knew them all, and it was horrible. That was that was mm. the worst part. Okay, they're always territorial. They will attack individuals of a neighboring community, um, but they don't know them. So there's a kind of reason for it. You know, you're protecting your territory. But this was different. This was, and they were treating these individuals not like in a normal quick chimp attack. They are quite aggressive. But they were treating them like animals that they kill for food using behavior that we never saw in attacks between individuals in the same community. Twisting the limbs, drinking blood. I mean, you don't do that to somebody in your group. So it was mm. horrible. Wow. I mean, they do have a dark side. That That's what makes them so like us. That kind of cruelty expressed, you know, to your neighbor or form, former family member feels almost personal. Yeah. Feels vengeful, which you wouldn't expect in in an animal, I suppose. I think of them more like people than animals. People say, oh, chimps, after chimps, what's your favorite animal? I say, chimps are not my favorite animal. They're much too like people. And I mm. don't even think of them as animals. But my favorite animal, of course, is a dog. <laughs> you and me both. What was your life like living and studying them for so long? How, how did you build a life that you loved so far from home? Was it that you were just so deeply inspired by what you saw every day? Did you feel more at home in Africa than you did in London? Did you bring books with you, have a routine? What what was your what was your world there? Well, first when I first went out, 
mum was with me because they wouldn't allow me to go alone and they said I had to have a companion and mum volunteered. So I had money for six months and she came for four and she boosted my morale because for four months they ran away. They had never seen a white ape before. And she also set up a clinic for the local fishermen, just simple aspirins and Band-Aids and, and, you know, those sort of simple things because she wasn't a doctor or nurse. And so established from the very beginning a really good relationship with the local people. They came for miles because she cured them with her simple cures. She spent hours with each one. And um, then she left and there was a cook and a boatman. And so every morning, every morning, it's like nowadays I don't have weekends, then I didn't have weekends. Every morning (laughs) up before dawn, up into the mountains, looking for the chimps, sitting on this peak I found, using my binoculars, Mm. staying up there, getting back to camp just before it was dark. And I knew those mountains like it was my home. I mean, I, I, I loved it. This was what I dreamed of. And once the chimps stopped running away, it was like magic. And then after I saw David Greybeard using tools to fish for termites, something humans were supposed to be the only tool-using making creatures. And that's where I got the pushback from male scientists saying, why why should we believe this young girl? And she's only getting money because she's got nice legs and she's on a geographic cover, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, this was when the geographic came in to um, support the research and sent a Mm. photographer and filmmaker And so um, being out in the mountains on my own, there's something special that if you're on your own, and I always feel this connection to a great spiritual power when I'm out in the forest, other wild places too, but especially the forest. And if you're alone, you forget your humanity. I can't explain it well, but you're just part of nature. Whereas if you're with anybody, even somebody you love, it's two people in nature. Whereas if it's just you, you are not there. You're just Mm. living as a part of the natural world. And that's why I know how terrible it is that young people today are being increasingly separated from the natural world, either because Mm. they're in the middle of cities uh, or because they're more interested in Facebook and video games and so on. Mm. And it's a tragedy. If you don't get children out into nature so they learn to understand and love it, how do we expect them to protect it? And if we don't protect it, you know, we're part of the natural world. We're not separated from it. Even in a city, we depend on it for clean Mm. air, for clean water, for food, shelter, everything. Mm. And we depend on healthy ecosystems. So Mm. the forest ecosystem to me was like a beautiful tapestry of interrelated strands of the Mm. different species. And as species get extinct, so threads are pulled from the tapestry until it hangs in tatters and the ecosystem collapses. And we depend on healthy ecosystems. 
So we'd better start doing something about it. We'd better start getting together to heal some of the wounds we've inflicted. It feels like a, you know, daunting, but clearly very necessary coming together. Is is that what inspired you to write your most recent book, The Book of Hope, to, to light that fire? Yes, because if we lose hope, and many people are, but if you lose hope, you 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 become apathetic. You know, you feel helpless and hopeless, and you don't do anything. And as more and more people lose hope, more and more people stop taking action. So for me, hope isn't just wishful thinking. It's not sitting and thinking, oh, well, I'm sure it'll be all right because blah, blah, blah. No, <sighs> it's... And I thought the other day of a, that it's rather like we're in the middle of a very, very dark tunnel filled with obstacles. And at the far end is a pinprick of light, and that's hope. Mm-hmm. And to get there, you don't just sit and hope you'll get there. You have to work and fight to get there to overcome the obstacles. And so we, the rallying cry is, there is hope, but only if we take action, all of us. Mm. It has to be an active hope. That's what hope is to me. It's not just wishful thinking. Mm. Is it that kind of commitment to taking the action that really led you to more directly take on conservation efforts? Because you spent so long observing and, and being a scientist and then forming and creating the mission around the Jane Goodall Institute, your approach is about conservation and and putting the focus and the power in local communities so that each place can, in their own way, do that work for their community. What What led you to that approach when you were building out the Institute? Because after I went to this conference in 86, I thought, well, I I hear that chimps are vanishing and forests are being destroyed. I better go and travel around Africa and see what's happening with my own eyes. I think you have to see with your own eyes. Mm -hmm. And got together a bit of money and went to six range countries and learned a lot about the problems facing the chimps, the loss of habitat, the bushmeat trade, people mm. moving deeper and deeper into the forest with their diseases. But I learned about the plight of so many of the people, the crippling poverty, the lack of good health and education, the degradation of the land, the growth of the human population. When I flew over Gombe, which had been part of a great forest in the 60s and the 70s, but when, when I flew over in the late 80s, it was just a little island of forest, this national park, where the mm-hmm. chimps were, surrounded by bare hills. And that's when it hit me. Wow. If we don't help these people find ways of living without destroying the environment, then we can't save chimps, forests, or anything else. And so that led to our Takari program, which is mm-hmm. very holistic and you know, includes restoring fertility to the overused land, scholarships to keep girls in school after puberty. As women's education improves, family size tends to drop. We Mm -hmm. provide family planning information. And Mm -hmm. we've now taught the people 
they volunteer and they come to workshops to learn about uh, monitoring the health of their village forest reserves with smartphones. Mm. They're very proud of it. It's all uploaded into a platform in the clouds. Amazing. And we're now in 104 villages throughout all the chimp range in Tanzania and in six other African countries. And the people are now our partners in conservation. Mm. All of these villages, we have our youth program, Roots and Chutes, in the schools, yeah. in all the schools. So all the children from kindergarten through university in 65 countries plus are choosing projects to make the world a better place, a project to help people, a project to help animals, a project to help the environment. Mm -hmm. I love it. And I think it's so important, especially as we take stock of what's happening around the world, you realize that so many of these places, you know, chimp territories that you're talking about and other regions around the world that are rich in resource are often cannibalized by larger foreign capitalist corporate systems. And to create, as you have, a platform for people to understand the value of their spaces is profound. I mean, it it was profound for me to be part, part of Roots and Shoots as a little kid. And I know we spoke about this before, but for the listeners at home, I've touched on this a little bit um, over the last year. But the, the silver lining for me of this slowdown, shutdown, you know, experience of working from home in the pandemic was really being able to cultivate my little bit of land in the city I live in and plant an abundance of trees and and I'm a, I'm keeping bees. I have two huge beehives in a garden and and to see the way that even in this yard that I didn't think I could do anything with, I've been able to create a little ecosystem. It's it's really inspired me that there's no project too big or too small if we lean into fostering healthy land. Yeah, well, that's the main message of Roots and Shoots, which is for everybody, mm -hmm. that every individual matters, has a role to play, and every mm -hmm. day we live, we make a difference on the planet, and we can choose what sort of difference we make, what do we buy, where did it come from, did it harm the environment, was it cruel to animals, is it mm -hmm. cheap because of unfair wages or forced labor? Yeah. And But until that part of what we need to do to make a better world is to think how we live and the sort of ecological footprint we make. But that mm -hmm. can't work until we alleviate poverty because if you're really poor, you can't make those choices. You have to buy yes. the cheapest. Um, you can't ask how it was made. You can't mm -hmm. talk about the ethics of it. You just have to buy the cheapest to survive. Yeah. So, you know, there's an awful lot we have to do we have mm -hmm. to alleviate poverty. We have to do something about the unsustainable lifestyle of the rest of us. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure that environmental and humanitarian education is in all the schools. Yes. Um, we have to think about our population because right now there's seven point, I think it's seven now, 7.7 .7 billion of us. And it's estimated by 2050 there'll be 
closer to 10 billion, and already we're using up natural resources in some places faster than nature can replenish them. So what's going to happen? Mm. We cannot go on with business as usual, and hopefully this pandemic has woken people up. We must find a new relationship with the natural world and animals. We must, Mm. because otherwise... Our species will become extinct. It's not just the rest of the animals with climate change and biodiversity loss. It's us. Yes. So if we care about our children, we need to change the way, we need to change mindsets. And you touched on that when you talked about as we encroach into more wild spaces, we are responsible for creating the rise in zoonotic diseases. We see viruses like the avian flu and this year, COVID-19, these are caused by environmental stress and destruction done by humans. Can, Can you explain for people who are less familiar with that science than than you are as an expert, how human activity contributes to epidemics? Well, one thing, we penetrate deeper and deeper into animal habitats and force some species closer to humans. And Mm. occasionally that creates uh, an environment where it's relatively easy for a pathogen like a virus to jump from an animal to a person, where it may form a new disease. Mm. And in addition, we hunt them. We sell them in wildlife markets. We traffic them around the world. We cram them into tiny factory farms in cruel conditions. And all these stressed, dis- distressed animals, um, it apparently makes it easier for a pathogen to jump over to a human. Mm. And so these so-called zoonotic diseases, you know, this pandemic is one, and then there was SARS, and then there was MERS, and mm-hmm. um, HIV, AIDS, um, yes. all were zoonotic diseases. They say 75% of all newly emerging diseases in humans is from animals. Hmm. So we need to have a different relationship with animals and treat them as they are, sentient beings with feelings Hmm. and personalities. And that's why the talk's going on now at fairly high levels to ban the wildlife trade so important, mm. but it's not going Absolutely. to be easy because it's a multi-billion-dollar um, industry. This illegal wildlife trade. When I see those photos of people out sport hunting, I just can't. I truly can't understand it. I can't understand how someone feels tough killing an animal f- for fun. I, I, I genuinely, it feels. Um, it feels like a rip in the matrix to me. I just go, what are you doing? It's horrible. And and I think about ways to combat that culture, but also to your point, create new relationships to the way that we live and interact with animals. And I do think that we need policy to change, bans on the wildlife trade, bans on sport hunting, all of those things. And I think, again, bringing it back to the advocacy that you do and the empowerment, uh, the potential that we find when we empower communities. When we think about protecting 
wildlife zones, protecting wetlands, which, you know, speaking of climate change, can help save humans from the effects of things like hurricanes. When you support, through the Institute, the Trillion Trees Initiative, for example, I think about reforesting the earth and and protecting forests and, and keeping us farther from these wildlife habitats. That, to me, feels like something I want to lean into, and I imagine a lot of listeners will as well. Can you describe Trillion Trees and, and tell people how they might get involved? Well, the Trillion Tree uh, campaign was launched at Davos two years ago. Only two years ago? Yep. <laughs> wow. Yep. Uh, it was launched by um, Salesforce. I helped to launch it. Um, it's mm. not that the trillion trees, I mean, doesn't really mean much to me. What's important to me is that we need to protect, the, protecting is far more important, protect yes. the forests we have left with their rich biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yes, we we should also plant trees, but it's going to take a while for trees, especially in temperate zones, to mm. grow big enough to absorb the necessary amount of, of uh, CO2. But the Chinese have a wonderful proverb. The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Mm. And so, Sorry but you that. know what's important? It, planting a tree isn't just sticking a tree in the ground. It's got to be the right species, the right mm. time of year, and the right soil. And it's got to be looked after. So sometimes these huge government initiatives where they say, oh, we're going to try to plant a million trees in a week or something. Um, how many of those trees live? And very mm. often when it's investigated, uh, not many do. So mm. Trees for Jane has very tough standards. And the price to plant a tree in our project is more than many others because it includes aftercare of the tree. Mm. And so we Trees for Jane is in support of this large trillion tree, which is more mm. dealing with big corporations and governments. And we're mm. grassroots. And that that was a piece that was missing from the trillion trees. So they're very happy about it. I love that. So how can how can the average listener then assist in advocating for the kind of reforestation that you're talking about. Firstly, and most importantly, protecting habitats that exist. And then secondly, when trees are being planted in initiatives like this, to make sure that they're cared for and fostered to survive so that, you know, by the time we're all grandparents, those trees will still be living. How how best can we use our voices for that? Well, we've picked, Trees for Jane has picked, I think it's five partners. Remember, it's very new and we haven't, we haven't got there yet. But there is a website and you can click on a button which says that you want to um, help protect forests. And that means with our six partners who, who have a, a trusted track record, mm. um, Money goes to to the projects that are protecting forests. So that will go to things like forest monitors and rangers and all the people who are protecting these forests and woodlands. And you can also just um, press a button and pay a certain amount of money to plant it if you plant a tree or 
pay for the tree to be planted by people planting trees. But these are all going to projects that have got a good track record. And there are three scientists who are monitoring uh, where the money goes. Wonderful. So that's, you know, that's how that's how you can ensure as well as we possibly can that the tree will survive. Mm. And what about for listeners who want to help protect endangered species? How can they get more involved in your work? Well, there are a lot of organizations protecting endangered species, and you can find it all on the website. You know, people want to, well, our roots and shoots groups, we have groups protecting koalas, protecting pangolins, mm. protecting rhinos, protecting chimps, protecting gorillas. We all around the world are young people because they can choose their projects. So, you know, mm. they all have different, you know, there's a lot protecting turtles. There's a big push now across the U.S. to protect the migration route of the monarch butterfly. And you can do mm. such a lot by plant allowing milkweed to grow in your in your yard. So there's all kinds of different ways. And if you just browse around in the internet about protecting endangered species, you'll find hundreds of ways you can help. And everybody wants to help something different. You can't help them all. But but we can all lean into something, and that feels exciting. I, I'm curious, Jane, because it seems to me that you are constantly leaning into more, more books and more advocacy and more speaking engagements and more Zooms, and, and you're even leaning into a podcast. And I love that you've called it the Jane Goodall Hopecast, because you always come back to hope. I'm curious how you would describe your show to someone who might be a potentially new listener. Well, the Hopecast is choosing people from different different spheres with different expertise um, and talking to them. And always it's about, yes, what's gone wrong, but positive ways. So people who have uh, solutions to some of the problems. So mm -hmm. it's not just the kind of doom and gloom we get from so much of the media, mm -hmm. but it's, yes, there are these terrible problems. It's like that dark tunnel, but there are solutions. We know we've got these amazing brains. We know how to restore health to damaged soil, damaged by our stupid agriculture or that we've built over it or something. Um, mm -hmm. There are ways, and we know that we know what they are. We just have to get more governments to subsidize these projects. And we can use uh, renewable energy. And again, governments prefer very often to, to subsidize oil and gas. It's a sort of mm -hmm. old cronies network. And so it's changing attitudes, it's changing mindset, which I try to do through telling stories. So in the mm -hmm. Hopecast, we tell a lot of stories, and they're about very different, like we've done one on Under the Sea with um, Craig Foster, who did my octopus teacher. We've talked with the environmental head of Apple. Uh, we've talked with... Uh, I. I I can't remember now. I mean, I've done so many other things as well as Hopecast, mm -hmm. so many other people's podcasts and Hope, um, you know, I mean, my mind is so chock-a-block. I can't remember <laughs> what I've done. 
You've done a lot, Jane. You've done a lot and you've inspired so many of us. And I'm so grateful you've taken the time today to come on this podcast. And as the theme of it goes, I'm very curious to ask you this question. Given all you've done, you know, the accolades, the awards, um, again, most recently we saw each other for the Templeton Prize. You, you've, you've shown up in such immense ways for the planet, for people, for animals. What, as you look at everything you're doing now, what in your life feels like a work in progress to you? It is a work in progress. I mean, I've always said that, um, you know, when you when you think ahead to where you want to go, you better aim for the stars, you might get to the moon. If you only aim for the moon, you might get to the top of Everest. So I like aiming for the stars. So goal is to get roots and shoots into as many schools as possible, and it is kindergarten through university and, and beyond, and create a critical mass of people who understand that, of course, we need money to live, most of us, but it goes wrong when we live for money, unless mm. we live to make money to help make the world a better place, which is a good thing to do, especially if the money goes to the Jane Goodall Institute for all our projects, which I know are good, they're changing. You know, you can't imagine the number of roots and shoots people who who write to me and say, well, it's changed my life. I never used to think like this. Now, now mm -hmm. I know that there's a way forward and I'm going to do my bit. You know, when I go to China, we started there in 95, Adults come up to me and say, but of course I care about animals and the environment. I was in Roots and Shoots in primary school. <laughs> so it has literally, and also young people are changing their parents and their grandparents all the time. Mm, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's really wonderful. Well, Jane, thank you. Thank you for your work and your activism, the programs that you've made so accessible to so many of us, and for joining us today. Mm -hmm.